0: on this episode of the Resound Project podcast.
1: But I I think faithful Christians today might take from Augustine that he never obviously baptized Rome as the kingdom, but he also didn't condemn it in order to make the church look good.
0: We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the Church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the Church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture with thoughtful leaders, including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together, we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day, and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. In this episode, we continue the conversation with Princeton professor Eric Gregory about what we can learn from Augustine as we consider our fraught social life and divisive political culture. In true Augustinian fashion, we discuss how Christians should resist the false choices that are often presented to us, for example, between either idolizing America or condemning it between either fleeing from the secular world of politics or embracing it in a kind of power grab, between either committing oneself exclusively to one's nation or considering oneself a citizen of the world. Eric concludes the episode by offering some practical suggestions for how Christians can take inspiration from the past while creatively addressing problems in the present. Eric Gregory is professor of religion at Princeton University and the author of Politics and the Order of Love, An Augustinian Ethic of Democratic Citizenship. In addition to being an expert on Augustine, Eric teaches courses on religion, ethics, and politics. Here's the conversation. And so with that background, I think we could try to pull Augustine then into our own day. As you've said, he both affirmed the political order but relativized it at the same time. And in light of that, what do you think Christians today could gain from his perspective, regardless of whether they situate themselves on The left, the right, or the center of the political spectrum.
1: Yeah. um, I think, and this was often true in the 20th century, someone like Reinhold Niebuhr, who thought that uh, particularly American progressives were too idealistic in thinking about what could be achieved. Mm -hmm. And so he was always tempering their enthusiasm Mm -hmm. with an Augustinian recognition that there is no true justice, or at least there's no true justice that we human beings can accomplish. But I think Augustine at the same time, and Niebuhr as well, recognize that that doesn't mean that there's nothing good that can be done. It means that we still can love our neighbor through political action, through culture building, what have you. But I, I think faithful Christians today might take from Augustine that he never obviously baptized Rome as the kingdom, but Mm -hmm. he also didn't condemn it in order to make the church look good. It's a much more nuanced position. I think it's a recognition of the the imperfections of the earthly peace, but to always make use of it. So, you know, there's different models. James Davison Hunter, who I know you've you've been in dialogue with, talks about faithful presence. Uh, Others have talked about different ways of a kind of principled pluralism or Christian liberal democracy, etc. But I I think this kind of balancing between um, neither fleeing the secular world of politics and condemning it or embracing it in a kind of power grab. Uh, I think the Augustinian tradition tries to mediate between those two as a kind of false choice. So I think that that does still down kind of abstract, but I think that disposition can help when we get to nitty gritty details of public policy, which themselves can admit lots of disagreements, even as I think Christians can maintain kind of principled stances, without getting into the kind of vulgar power politics of a kind of realism that the Augustinian tradition also has sometimes supported. Mm
0: -hmm. It increasingly seems to me like we're being offered some kind of false choice between what you could call religious populism on the one hand, or religious progressivism on the other. So if Augustine were to sit down with us today, uh, why would he describe both as a false choice? And would he offer a different path forward for us.
1: Yeah, well, no one knows what Augustine would think if he sat down with us today, uh, although I guess I get paid to sometimes teach what what it might be. Yeah, I think the way you frame it is always avoiding these false choices, although I think we also, you know, we also have to recognize a lot's changed since Augustine. I mean, Augustine, he didn't have this kind of awareness of what might happen through politics, partly because Roman politics was you know, not a very pretty picture. And, and, and he lived in, a, in an era when he just, in some ways, didn't trust the lawyers. He thought that uh, the empire was not the, the greatest way to organize our political life. So, as I said, he wasn't a Democrat, but I think you're, you're keen to this kind of Augustinian disposition that you can't fully embrace a kind of either conservatism or progressivism as your kind of ultimate frame of reference. He has a different frame of reference, and that is going to change how one approaches, I think, not just the kind of nature of politics, but actually maybe particular issues as well. It doesn't mean that one can't be committed to certain things, but there's a recognition that Christians, again for Augustine, the fundamental teaching with respect to ethics and politics is to love God and neighbor. And the problem today is a lot of people are nervous, particularly non-Christians, when they hear Christians say they're going to love you because they think it it, it implies a kind of coercion, it, it right. implies a kind of inability to recognize other forms of life, etc. So on the one hand, not this false choice. I think the really difficult question, though, and this is a question for the Augustinian tradition, but I think the Christian tradition in general is sort of, well, what is politics for if it's not redemptive? what are we doing? And this has always been the charge against the otherworldliness of Christianity. Mm. And Some Christians have sort of emblematically embraced that and said, well, we just need to mourn and wait. And, and, and this has popular resonance with certain movements in the church today. Even as there's also at the same time, a recovery of an older Augustinian tradition that adopted uh, forms of religious coercion. You know, sometimes it's called Catholic integralism today, Mm -hmm. but it's also uh, has attractions within Protestant circles. And and again, that can be on the left or the right, because I I agree, you know, Augustine thinks we're all sinners. And so I don't want to sort of come across as, you know, raising the flag for a particular political position here, uh, because I, I do think that progressives also can sometimes sanctify their public policy positions. In ways that Augustine at least would warn against as idolatry.
0: Yeah, I think the the um, idolizing of the political order on the left and the right is equally a problem. And then, therefore, the the real question is how, how do we engage in the political order in a way that uh, is faithful to our primary citizenship within the kingdom of God without withdrawing from the broader culture nor assuming some kind of triumphalistic perspective like we have the right on our side and we always know what it is. But uh, perhaps we could segue then to uh, another topic uh, which has to do with the, the question of both one's relationship to the nation as well as one's relationship to the world. It seems to me that following the populist upheavals like the Capitol riot on January 6th or Brexit in the United Kingdom. There have been considerable debates about the proper relationship of a Christian to one's nation. Uh, I personally don't think that anyone's thinking about this as carefully and theologically as you are. So why is it so easy, do you think, for people to slip into a unthinking form of either nationalism on the one hand or internationalism on the other, whereby one's identity as a Christian simply merges and blurs with one's identity as either a citizen of America or a citizen of the world.
1: Yeah, I think this is also a pressing question for the church, um, but I also know lots of people outside the church who are witnessing what's happening, at least in, a, in, in American public life, but really around the world, as you suggested, you right. know, not yeah. just in Britain, but throughout Europe and also in in other places where Christians have a strong presence. And as you say, I I think partly because of the horrors of the 20th century, at least in academic theology, there was a kind of strong rejection of of what we'll call religious nationalism. I know all these words sometimes um, are taken in different ways, but a, a strong condemnation of that, of Nazism, of the kind of, way in which the church became complicit in certain nationalistic projects and condemned them as demonic even. But since then, I, I think it, theology, at least, has been relatively silent. But if you look in political science and other disciplines, and, and obviously just in, uh, you don't have to be an academic looking around the world, There, there's this kind of rising concern about what you call unthinking forms of, of nationalism or or internationalism even. I've been critical of uh, another American theologian, Stanley Hauerwas. Um, He's a good friend of mine. I've learned a lot from him. Uh But I think he's right that when you ask about why is it that it's so easy to become unthinking about this, it's it's because of the way in which the American story has become the catechesis and formation of many Christians. And there's a kind of conflation of being— Christian with being American. I think this kind of leads to a kind of unthinking celebration of America as central to one's identity, particularly because we kill in the name of America. So it requires a kind of solidarity and loyalty that demands, and it, it, it has a kind of liturgy that we learn through history, education, and through participating in certain rituals I think also this has to do with, and I don't think this was as true when we were growing up, Jason, I don't know, where politics consumes our conversations. Part of the Augustinian tradition is that politics is not the ultimate thing. It's it's important, but the best politics knows there are a lot of other important things besides politics. Right. And so I, I think this kind of conflation of, of being American with being Christian, and, you know, it emerges in a different way now particularly, as I was saying before, of, of a kind of identification of Christianity with a certain political party. Right. At the same time, on the other side, there's a kind of um, reaction against it that I also think is a temptation that one finds, particularly among liberal Protestants, and that is a kind of cosmopolitanism and, and a kind of you know, sense that, well, the American story doesn't mean anything to me or because I've read Galatians 3, and I know that we are called to be citizens of the world. And, and this, is, this has a long tradition of early Christians even kind of got accused of, of kind of scattering how we should think about our identities, because all of a sudden they started preaching this universal gospel to all nations. And, and what a glorious thing about the Christian church, that it is open to all peoples, But as I said, theologically, how do we think about what are all those nations doing in the Bible still, even in the New Testament? Paul doesn't sort of all of a sudden leap out of his skin and become like an unmarked creature of the spirit. There's still this question of what are the nations doing in Revelation when they bring their glory? And I I think that, you know, how to think about being a Gentile. Is, is part of the question of what to a Christian is a nation. And here I'm talking particularly about the nation, because I think one of the easy things Christians have done, and I think this is important, is to promote a kind of tempered patriotism. And I, I think that that is an important, especially in the face of a kind of violent insurrectionist nationalism. Um, but theologically, that kind of enlightened patriotism, which is also being promoted by a lot of people, let's say, in the center, moderate position of our intellectual life, doesn't really engage, I think, with some of these tough biblical questions about national identity, not just about how to think about the state. And in America, we sometimes think about our nationalism in terms of ideas. But but one thing is, again, when I was talking about the rituals and the liturgy, being committed to a nation can't just be being committed to propositions. It it involves a series of kind of material things that shape our life, and for which I think Christians should be grateful. I I have a gratitude for a sense of my Americanness, something that becomes very clear when I go to England or I go to Africa or other places. So I am a moral cosmopolitan. I I believe in, in universal human rights and the dignity of all persons. But I, I'm a, what what's sometimes called a liberal nationalist. I, I I think it's appropriate to have gratitude and and piety towards one's
0: place. And I think that this is where the where the rub really is right now, because I think many Christians recognize that the gospel relativizes a person's relationship to one's nation and unites people across ethnicities and nationalities. Uh, but then some people can leap to the other side by saying, well, if that's true, well, then you have to embrace this cosmopolitan identity. And often they assume that that means that you have to consider yourself a, a globalist and and uh, all the economic, financial, or cultural entanglements that come alongside of that. So how, how would you uh, try to clarify this for a Christian today in terms of what does that mean in practice, where one can uh, identify as an American without making it an idol, and yet uh, also uh, affirm those universal moral ideals that you're talking about that do unite us with people of all times and places?
1: Yeah, well, I know you want to get to practical things as a good pastor, um, but I'll, I'll just step back and say that's too concrete. Let's be more abstract for a moment. And I think one way to do that is to, as I said, recognize that, you know, we're, we're awash in calls for recognition of identity and diversity in, in our universities and, and even uh, in our broader public life. And, and again, I think there are healthy ways of pursuing those calls, which are recognitions of important forms of respect. Um, there, there are unhealthy ways. But I think one, one way, again, that the Christian tradition needs to think about, well, how does national identity incarnate particular goods as part of the diversity of God's providence in the world? There are just passages in the Bible that seem to say that. But practically, one thing, at least, you know, I said I'm a nationalist, but I'm really an internationalist. Because I think a kind of commitment to internationalism chastens one's nationalism to recognize difference Mm -hmm. and to see that while we can affirm our own particular national histories and identities, that doesn't need to come at the expense of others. And I think this was part of the, the real project practically of mid 20th century liberal Protestantism, which created all sorts of transnational institutions that tried to address, you know, the urgent global problems of their day. And I, I don't see as much creativity among our generation with respect to that. Now, they had those efforts had lots of problems. If anything, I think what our generation is really good as criticizing those problems. Mm-hmm. But I think trying to find ways to like they were trying to do, kind of live out this recognition of a, a kind of international global ethic that didn't try to turn everyone into Americans. And that, that that's going to be hard because different cultures and histories have different ways of organizing political life. But I, I think this the, there is this kind of chastened patriotism but really what we need is, is theologically, and this has to do with how we read Paul, how we read the arc of um, the sweep of biblical history. So these ideas, which often have theological backgrounds, come to the forefront in some of these practical questions. But I, I think that the general move I'm trying to make is we don't need to just cho- choose between cosmopolitanism, rootless cosmopolitanism, and toxic religious nationalism, and that maybe the international vision that I do think comes out of the biblical witness and was part of the mid-20th century can be reconfigured for our day. But I know that puts me at odds with the National Conservatism Conference, and it might put me at odds with uh, some of my left-leaning academic friends, but at least that's where I'm trying to think through these things. And it doesn't necessarily dictate a particular policy position on you know XYZ uh, legislation, but
0: it, it kind of tries to give me a framework for thinking about these things. And to clarify, it seems that what's important in what you're saying is that when you identify yourself as a internationalist, it is in accord with the biblical witness. It's not necessarily being defined by an international political order. So do you want to clarify that a little bit? Because I I think someone could hear you speaking and, and say, well, I consider myself part of the, you know, the international community and And they would say, well, we don't even need to listen to Eric Green then because he's not one of our people. Uh, But I think what you're trying to say is that it's it's the Christian scriptures themselves, uh, which which call us to understand our identity is larger than our nation. Yeah.
1: I've never been to Davos. Uh, I am not a member (laughs) of the Communist Party. So, yes, my internationalism shouldn't be mistaken for you know, whatever image one might have of what that word means. I, I think I want to root it, as you said, in the biblical tradition, particularly of the Hebrew prophets and of Isaiah. Uh, a real, I mean, we, we'd have to we'd have to have a really long podcast to go through this story, Jason, or, or maybe come listen to your sermons at Central Presbyterian. But it's the, the grand sweep of this biblical witness about God's election of Israel as a light unto the nations. And, and so there's a recognition even there of this call by grace in order to heal the nations and to bring them together. The desire of the nations, which Christians believe, comes to climax in the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as I said, that doesn't necessarily mean that we eradicate and that doesn't mean we decimate our particularities as members of the body of Christ. I know there's all sorts of, you know, practical questions that might arise here for not just nationalism, but also how the church thinks about its uh, liturgies, because there's different cultural traditions, different national traditions even. But I think what I'm trying to suggest here is that, yes, this, you know, internationalism or globalism, I mean, these becomes terms of abuse, just like Christian nationalism does. And, and I think some of these terms, we've just lost a sense of what they mean anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're right to call me back and say, what I'm trying to suggest is the biblical witness seems to be that God does relate to peoples. And this, this also raises theological questions, because Protestants tend to think that God's just relating to me. You know, individualism. Right. right. Um, and I think there are. Reformed theologians will have different answers to how we think about the covenants, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm just trying to suggest is at least at the the big picture level, there is a way in which being a Gentile should humble Christians about thinking certainly that America is the new Israel, but also kind of a way of of thinking about our identities that can... um, recognize the the virtues of of particularity without also losing the sense of the, the drawing together of the peace of the nations, which, again, won't happen in history through human effort. So I'm not idealistic and wildly utopian about the possibilities of like world government or anything like that. What I'm trying to say is that theologically the biblical witness seems to demand this kind of internationalism that celebrates and values the the life world of nations.
0: Right. And I, I think the scripture passage that you mentioned earlier from Revelation is a, is a striking one. The nations will walk by the light of the Lamb and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the new heaven, the new earth. So there's there's this continuing theme of the nations, the ethne, the people groups, yeah. uh, which uh, are not obliterated with the universalizing principles of, of the kingdom of God. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's really the three central characters of the Bible, God, Israel and the nations. And for Christians, it's how to think about what the coming of Christ means for that. And and in some ways, that's what I think Paul is wrestling with as the apostle to the Gentiles.
0: So again, so maybe, uh, maybe some practical questions then. Uh, you know, I think on the one hand, what this means is that the idolatrous mistake that Christians can make, especially in this country, is to identify America with the new Israel. So we recast the whole story of salvation with America at the center. And uh, that, that's a, a serious mistake. And uh, will lead to all kinds of theological religious and political problems Uh, and yet at the same time as we've just said there is a proper place for commitment to one's nation. So do you have some practical advice for Christians in their day-to-day lives about how to hold those things in tension and what might it mean to participate in the political order in in faithful ways? What should or shouldn't Christians do?
1: Again it's it's hard to put these in a nutshell. Any Theology that you can say in a nutshell belongs in the nutshell. So um, I think we can pray, <laughs> we can think together, and I think we can act and organize. I, I think there's been resurgent interest in the like examples of the church in the past, uh, whether it's the civil rights movement or other movements of the 20th century, where Christian lay leaders, particularly, organized communities in local settings. But also in national settings and even, as I mentioned, transnational ones. I think one of the practical things that um, the church does at its best is it promotes kind of intergenerational friendships across class and race.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: At times, not always. You know, we know the sordid history of the segregation of American churches. We know wow. the ways in which regional demographics impact how the church expresses the same polarizations that we find in the broader public. But again, I think Christians have not just moral, but compelling spiritual reasons to kind of create these, what King called beloved community. And, and that, you know, the, the old song, they'll know we're Christians by our love. And that way of kind of incarnating practically these intern generational bonds of friendship across the differences that so mark our culture is one thing that the church in a tangible way needs to think about how that is to be done. And again, I think part of that is you know, not just reading a bunch of theology, but kind of maybe turning to these examples as some movements today of the church do. Augustine sometimes thought of the church as like a little school. And so churches need to be places where examples, concrete examples, can be given, not just preached, although, you know, it's good to have preachers, but lived out in, in embodied ways. And, you know, especially for a culture today that I think is just groaning for exemplars and, and for ways of in embodying what is good, true, and beautiful. And, and there's not a lot of spaces in our culture that provide that. I think it's one of the reasons why there's such loss of social trust, especially among younger generations. So I think it does really involve the the kind of local church. But uh, I think they're just, we need to, as I mentioned, there's just, there, there are a lot of thoughtful Christians around <laughs> who find themselves in, certainly compared, I think, to maybe previous generations of, of recent vintage, there, there's a lot of thoughtful Christians in different vocations, and we need to find ways of kind of convening them and organizing them in order to think about the the crisis of the church and American public life.
0: Well, I resonate with that very strongly, because I feel like that is in part the position that I'm in as a pastor. I can help bring people together across those generational divides, across those socioeconomic, those political divides, and help convene people uh, who are thinking deeply about these issues so that we don't remain polarized uh, between populism and progressivism or nationalism or internationalism, and to help people think more deeply about our own roots, our own story, our own past, Uh, So that uh, we're not unthinking about the way in which we move through the world, but we're actually trying to be true to the story of the scriptures that have formed our lives and which will ultimately determine our future. Uh, So I wonder, as one uh, concluding question, you know, if there's one thing that thoughtful Christians could do uh, to help improve the state of the church today, what what would you recommend? Well,
1: maybe it's provoked by something you just said, we're having in universities, but I think also in the broader public, a kind of debate about how we remember Mm -hmm. our histories. And part of this has to do with, you know, the 1619 project, for example, but also I think broadly concerns about historical injustices. And this can be paralyzing. Uh, a, A lot of it, I think, is a very important effort to narrate those histories more truthfully mm-hmm. uh, and uh, rather than the kind of sometimes, um, sanitized versions that we've had. And in a way that's what Augustine did with the Roman historians. He said, you're telling this sanitized story. Let me tell you what really happened. But I think the danger is sometimes again, getting back to Augustine given his views on the nature of sin It's seen as determining the destiny of your society in its origins. This is what, you know, original sin is sometimes thought to mean, is that because we are fallen, we will always be fallen in the same ways. It's one damn thing after another. And some stories about American history are, well, because it began in this soil, it will always be thus. I think what thoughtful Christians need to do, again, taking inspiration from the past, which was still still with us in many respects, but also much more diverse than we often think. And a way of kind of creatively addressing these problems without giving to, into that despair or thinking about history as determined. Even as, on the other hand, we don't think that we are able to build our utopian dreams through earthly means. So that, again, gets back to what I originally was talking about, this disposition. So I think the kind of interventions we need, and in some ways I think there's more of it now uh, than there has been, to end on a positive note. (laughs) I think the coverage of religion in some of the mainstream media has gotten a little bit more nuanced. Mm-hmm. A recognition of the differences within Christian traditions, not always, but certainly compared to 20 years ago. So, and also, as I mentioned, there there are evangelical Christians in lots of different arenas. I think there is a sense, though, of many of them, I speaking just practically about my elite Princeton undergraduates, of wandering a bit in the wilderness as to to who and what they should care about,
0: mm-hmm.
1: given the kind of trauma of our public life and the representatives of Christianity often. So again, I think the thoughtful Christian needs to to kind of help the church kind of by being truthful about the histories But not letting that depress us so much that we think that there's not a way to constructively engage with our culture and to love our neighbor and to love God that doesn't always just perpetuate injustice.
0: Well, I'm grateful that you're one of those thoughtful Christians who we can turn to who's warning us against the dangers of just resigning ourselves to pessimism and cynicism and yet tempering our enthusiasm as well so that we don't think that we in our own power can change the world and create some sort of utopia, our eyes on the ultimate horizon of uh, God's promised future. But with that said, we need people like you calling us to the work that we can do in the time that we have. And I think that's really important for all of us to hear, regardless of our age and stage in life. So thank you, Eric, for Taking the time to speak with me today. This was a real treat for us and a great privilege. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.